Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on this week's podcast, lead 2020 elections reporter Megan Messerly sits down with presidential hopeful Tom Steyer to talk about his approach to the campaign trail, his plans for health care reform, his time in rural Nevada, including milking cows, and more. In our second segment of the show, we hear from our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. As reporter On Gray has two stories for us, including one on a dating app that looks to help people with STDs find a partner. At the end of the show, in a segment we're calling Indie Reads, I call up reporter Riley Snyder to chat about a new book he's read. Well, thank you so much. We're joined today on the podcast by Democratic presidential hopeful Tom Steyer. Welcome. Megan, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Wonderful. So I wanted to start off chatting a little bit about sort of the state of the race, right? We're, you know, a little less than a year from the general election. We're coming up here on Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. It's all going to start happening. Looking at the state of the race, especially here in Nevada, it's kind of been a, a wide open field. There's not been a front runner that's kind of emerged like we've seen in some of the other states. So for you, thinking about, you know, the next hundred or so days of this race, what does that look like for you in Nevada as you try to break into sort of that, that top tier? Look, I think... I feel the same way about Nevada that I feel about the rest of the country, which is this race is completely wide open. Mm -hmm. I think that the number of people who haven't made up their minds has actually gone up over the last three months. So I look at this and think, you know, every time I hear about a uh, political race, people say it breaks late. Well, of course it breaks late. Most people who are just normal citizens don't think about it until the month before the election in any real way. So all the political junkies are totally focused on it for a year. Sure. But normal citizens start to focus on it about a month before the election. That's what I think will happen in every state. And that's what's going to happen in Nevada, too. Yeah. Thinking about Nevada specifically, I mean, what, what do you think it is that you have to appeal to Nevadans? I mean, I just think about, you know, we're a, we're a Western state, right? We're really diverse compared to Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, how, how does that make your campaign here different than sort of the way you're, you're playing in Iowa and New Hampshire? I'm from the West. You know, I think that there is a different Western sensibility. And so from my standpoint, this part of the country is expecting a, a forward-looking person. They're expect, you know, they're, we're not discussing in the Western part of the United States a lot of questions that people still are discussing mm-hmm. in the Eastern parts of the states. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no one out West really talks about whether climate is happening. We talk about what to do about climate. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't talk. I think I come from a majority-minority state. There's an, an understanding that people are going to be fully accepted, and it is, it's not acceptable to bring up race in the way or ethnicity in the way that Mr. Trump does in the West of the United States. Mm-hmm. We're just much more open to different kinds of people than certainly Mr. Trump and the Republicans are. And that kind of language and attitude is something that could never fly. Thinking about the way the West has been represented in this race, I know a lot was made, especially early on with Nevada. Obviously, we have our early caucus, but with California moving up in the primary process, there was kind of this expectation or anticipation that maybe the West would play a greater role. But we ha- I don't think we've really seen that, right, as far as candidates going to maybe California as much as Californians would have hoped, right? So I mean, was that your expectation as well? And do you feel like the West is being ignored in this race? Oh, negative. I mean, the overall bulk of the um, media in this country is on the East Coast. The overall bulk of the people running in this race are from within 100 miles of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, you know, I, I've lived out West for four decades, and I can tell you that 
people on the East Coast will say, we're going to do thus and so on Thursday, would you like to come? And if you say to them, we're going to do thus and so on Thursday, would you like to come? They'll go like, do you have any idea how far that is? (laughs) He's like, well, yes, it's the same distance as I go to Mm -hmm. go to the East Coast. Sure. So I think, yeah, I think that there's a an East Coast bias in terms of time zone and media that's mm-hmm. undeniable. And, you know, I think people in Nevada probably feel it. And I know people in California feel it. Mm-hmm. Another issue I've been thinking about, you know, hasn't been quite as bad here, obviously, that we've ha- had some bad fires in the past. But thinking about the fires in California and sort of the focus, I know there was a an AP article that ran last week about, you know, presidential candidates are kind of ignoring the fires, you know, thinking about, you know, candidates, are they going to visit, right? Are they meeting with first responders? First of all, I mean, is that something that you've thought about doing, going to meet with first responders and residents displaced by the fires in California? I mean, Megan, I'm from California. Mm-hmm. These aren't our first fires. I went through Sonoma County last year to talk to first responders, mm-hmm. to talk to firefighters, but also to see how the total state responded to that and to the people whose homes had been destroyed and mm-hmm. lives had been disrupted. Yeah. And honestly, it was a fantastic response across the board. Mm-hmm. But my point is, this isn't news to me sure. just because I'm running for president. Right, right. You know, I've been involved with this literally for a decade. And so when someone talks about climate and the fires and this is really new, it may be new to them. But for people in California, for people in the West of the United States, we've been aware for a long time. That's why I said we know the climate's changing. We're dealing with it on a daily basis. When everyone was talking about the big fire in Sonoma this year, there were 330 fires burning in California. That just happened to be 75,000 acres in places that people have heard of and with a lot of coverage. Is it surprising to you that there haven't been more, you know, Democratic hopefuls, though, you know, going out to California, right, and and visiting with with folks there? You know, like we might see, (laughs) you think about something with a hurricane, right, where you might see folks go and want to meet with responders, but we haven't seen that sort of same attention on the West Coast. Megan, do you have any idea how far it is to California? Yeah, I I do, I do. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm from California myself. No, I'm just teasing because it's like, I'm sure they're sitting there going like, well, that's like a six-hour flight. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. It's like, Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's been interesting to see just sort of the the focus in the race. And like I was saying before, with just this expectation that maybe there would be more emphasis on, on folks doing sort of the California-Nevada swing, right, and making that sort of a priority in their campaign. And well, we really you, haven't you seen know, that come through. I mean, Megan, if you look at the United States, you can see that the West is increasingly going to a much more progressive, forward-looking attitude towards the world. I mean, you look at Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, New Mexico, there's kind of a sense that, you know, let's stay with the times. Let's keep moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to to pivot to to something that was obviously big news on Friday, which is Senator Elizabeth Warren releasing her plan of how she's going to pay for for Medicare for All. And I know you commented on this over the weekend a little bit about her plan. I know your your thoughts on Medicare for All. But I'm wondering if you could sort of share with our listeners what your concerns are about the funding mechanism that she's proposed for Medicare for All. Well, first of all, I want to say I share with Senator Warren and I think with everybody else who wants to be the Democratic nominee, two goals. One is to drive down the cost of health care in the United States of America and to make sure that health care is a right mm-hmm. for every American. And I think that's the goal of her Medicare for All plan. Looking at that, it seemed like there was an enormous, it's a huge undertaking with gigantic assumptions about how it's going to work. And I think it, we don't have to take the kinds of risks that that plan entails if those assumptions don't prove to be true. And look, I spent decades looking at business plans. Ten years out in the future, 
is a long way out in the future, and mm-hmm. things happen that you never understood. Mm-hmm. So I looked at that plan, and I thought, we don't need to do, make all these heroic assumptions. We don't need to tell everybody, you have to do it our way, or you'll be breaking the law. We can offer a public option that, we'll make, that we can use to drive down prices, one of the goals, mm-hmm. and to make sure that every American is covered without telling people that we are going to, that they have to do what we tell them. For the 160 million Americans who get their health care through their employment, they can continue to do it if they choose to do it. So we can give people the right to make their own decisions. And we don't have to make, you know, do this gigantic turnaround with tens of trillions of dollars to redo the health care system. We can do it much simpler with less risk. And if it's such a great program, mm-hmm. if the if the public option is such a great program, it's cheaper, it's better, then everybody can choose to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's their choice mm-hmm. without taking the kind of risk of turning everything upside down in society and demanding that people do it our way. Sure. Well, what do you say to folks, I mean, who, who maybe do support Medicare for All or, or think it's a good idea right on the surface, that feel like the healthcare system is so fundamentally broken that they, you know, want something like that where it kind of just wipes out the current system and replaces it with something new? I mean, what would, what would you say to those folks to persuade them? I'd say, look, we have the same goals, drive down prices and have everyone be covered. If you want Medicare, if you want to be part of Medicare for All, you can do it. You just can't tell 160 million other Americans they have to do it when we say, in fact, we're going to be able to do that. Everything that it accomplishes, we're going to be able to accomplish, mm-hmm. but we're not going to have to turn society upside down. We're not going to take this huge risk, and we're not going to have to make all these heroic assumptions, mm-hmm. which could turn out to be true, but definitely could turn out not to be true. I know you're, you're concerned overall with the Medicare for All plan and, and the 10 years, as you've mentioned. And the risk. Yeah. Is there, are you concerned with her funding model, too, that it's not realistic, that well, that's it's the risk. not going to be? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're saying, look, when you look out 10 years in the future and you can tell me what the costs are going to be, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of savings in there that we all hope to get, but we can't be sure of. There are a bunch of projections about how, spending. That could be true, but other people are off by literally three, you know, 75%. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of assumptions in there that are huge assumptions that may or not, may not turn out to be true. Obviously, she must think they are, but there are a lot of people who think they definitely mm-hmm. aren't. We don't need to take that risk. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about 10 years being so far, far out in the future, though, but isn't the concern doing it on a more compressed time frame is even, you know, more risky, right, to try to transition everyone well, to you, something you, like that in a I mean, we have a healthcare period. system that really w- was birthed after the Second World War, right, 75 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you're going to take that and trash it, and we're going to have a whole new system. It's kind of like, okay. Well, if you think that's not a big change in society, I promise you that's a gigantic change in society. Mm-hmm. And it's not with a trivial issue. Mm-hmm. You're talking about people's lives, their health, and their families' lives, and their families' health. So we don't have to take that risk. We mm-hmm. can get the benefits of Medicare for All and do it through a public option. And it's much simpler, less risky, and it gets you to the same place without having to take the chances of huge upheaval and dramatic problems. Turning to another subject, I know you recently released a rural plan, right, on rural infrastructure, include mm-hmm. some energy developments. I think it's $112.5 billion to modernize the energy grid, build clean energy, bring good-paying jobs to rural areas. And I was kind of struck by that. That last one, I know you were in Iowa when you released this plan, but, you know, in Nevada, we have a lot of rural areas, too. And they, I mean, they're, they're frontier, right? They're not even just rural. You might be hundreds of miles, hours away from the nearest city or major hospital. So we, you know, we just face some challenges because of distance as yes. well. So how does that plan translate to a state like Nevada, where we have all these sort of old historical mining towns where, yeah. where folks are thinking, okay, what's the future for me here in this town? 
So, Megan, let me start by saying that my first summer job in college was working as a ranch hand in Gardnerville, Nevada. Really? I did not know yes, that. Yes. Huh. <laughs> so when you talk about rural Nevada, yeah. I've lived in rural Nevada. Why, why, did, you, why did you take that job? <laughs> well, I took the job because I, I lived on the East Coast and I wanted to see the rest of the country. Yeah. I thought it would be something where I would learn a lot and have an enormous amount of fun. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I got paid $100 a month. I was working eight to five, six days a week, milked two cows before breakfast and two cows after dinner. So I worked it out. It's less than 50 cents an hour, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Incredibly fun job. Uh-huh. Incredible. It was a cattle ranch. And, you know, I learned a lot of skills. You know, I, it, there were a bunch of the things I knew how to do before, but a bunch of the things I'd never done before. And so that was, an, I know a little bit about what rural Nevada looks like. Sure. It's a big place mm-hmm. and it's spread out and there it aren't is. that many people. What I'm talking about, look, the first thing about rural America is it's got, for it to be prosperous, it's mm-hmm. got to be connected to the rest of America. So that means broadband, high-speed internet, but it also means roads and bridges. You know, you have to be able to physically get places. That's first question. Second of all, you need services. You can't – people are not going to be happy. They're not going to move to places, however much fun they are and great places to live, if there's not going to be health services and if the schools are no good. So that's the second question about – the other thing is, when you look at our plan in terms of climate, so that, my number one priority is climate. And, you know, a lot of what you were talking about is asking rural America, farmers and ranchers, mm-hmm. to be partners in solving the climate crisis, to go and talk about how we can do it together, how we can use the open spaces to sequester carbon, to basically reverse the process that's been going on, and how to do it better, and to go and have them really partner and get and then put an incentive so it's in their interest they'll get paid for being part of the solution. And so when I th- a lot of what you were talking about there had to do with that plan. You know, in talking about rebuilding the grid, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to have to rebuild the United States. We always have to rebuild the United States. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to do it on an accelerated, you know, time scale because of the urgency of this problem, which means we're going to create millions of good paying union jobs. But it also means we're going to have to have people in the open spaces partnering with us in, in terms of making it work. Right. So these are green energy jobs. And, yes. And, and, and look, you know, I, I think you know this, Megan. I'm not sure everybody listening knows that I was the person who pushed question six in Nevada, which was to say 50 percent clean energy by 2030, yep. which passed. It did. And it's going to and be And then the it got passed again. in the legislature. Yep. And so it, really there was no organized opposition to it because it makes Mm -hmm. sense. Nevada is the state in the country that is best suited to solar energy. Right, right. The best. And it should be something that is a great economic strength for this state Mm -hmm. in terms of generating energy, in terms of creating businesses, in terms of creating jobs and good paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And so from my standpoint, we're, you know, that is a perfect example of what's going to have to happen. We're going to have to respect the open spaces in Nevada, in particular, in our plan on climate. There's a big part in there to make sure that we're preserving nature, that we're preserving open spaces, that we're preserving parks for people. But in addition, we're going to have to partner with people and make sure that we're creating prosperity in rural in rural, rural areas because they're great places to live if you can afford to live them sure. in them and have a job that you can live on. 
Sure. I know another issue sort of related to this, you've talked about increased cooperation between state, local, and the federal government on environmental issues. And one issue I'm thinking about here is is the Anaconda Copper Mine in Urington, which you might have heard about, a lot of the groundwater yes. contamination, which has been an issue for residents and, and for tribal communities there with, with the plume contaminating the yes. local groundwater. I, I'm wondering, one of your opponents, uh, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro's called for not only consultation, but consent from tribal communities going forward on mining projects with the potential to contaminate local groundwater. Would you agree with that? Look, I think there's no question that mining projects have long-term impacts in terms of pollution, particularly of groundwater. And there's no question that before you start the project, you should be understanding what those contaminations are going to be, how it's going to be controlled, and how it's going to be cleaned up. And that's something that hasn't happened in the past. So do I think that it's absolutely essential that people from the locality be brought in before it starts? Yes. And I think what we've seen with mines in the past has been that there has been a sense that you can go in and mine and contaminate and promise to clean up and never do it, and then walk away and leave the state or the, the federal government or the locality to pay for it and to suffer. And I know that with that anaconda mine, you know, it has contaminated the water, that mm-hmm. people can't drink the water, and that it's something that is, you know, that is the poster child for the way it's not supposed to happen. Right. Do you think there needs to be, though, like local and tribal consent on these projects? They need to say, yes, this is something we're comfortable with well, before those can move lo- forward? I do. I think that you have to get a permit in order to do mining mm-hmm. from local places mm-hmm. to make sure that they're going to be you know, that you're meeting the requirements and safety. And so exactly who that is will depend on exactly where you are. But yeah, you need to get a permit if you're going to go forward and disturb the natural environment and threaten people's health. Absolutely. And I think that what we've seen with the Trump administration has been a willingness to allow pollution and allow people basically to poison other people in order to make more profit. I mean, it's clearly a profit over people attitude. It's widespread. That's how their EPA works. It's mm-hmm. absolutely, you know, I, it's absolutely wrong. And I believe that people in the United States have a right to clean air and clean water. And that anybody who thinks it's okay for a company or corporation to poison them so they can make higher profits, that can't be right. And that's actually what we're talking about, isn't it? I wanted to talk a little bit about impeachment. Obviously, you've long been a proponent of impeachment with your Need to Impeach campaign. And now we're seeing that obviously move forward. Last week, it just moved into the next phase, right, which is the House actually taking a vote and and moving it forward into this public process. So hopefully the the public will have more of a sense of what's going on. Thinking sort of broadly about the process, though, you know, I I talked to, to moderates here and, you know, they they're interested in impeachment, right? They want to know what's going on. They want to know the arguments for and against. But they, they have this sense, too, that it feels kind of like a partisan thing. It feels like the Democrats are doing it, and they hear the Republicans oppose, and they don't know what to make of it. Is there a concern moving forward in this election that it, it feels like a partisan thing to these moderates who are trying to figure out you know, how to make sense of the impeachment inquiry? Look, my opinion about this thing has always been that this is a question of patriotism, not partisanship. And I started Need to Impeach over two years ago. Because I said, this is the most corrupt president in American history, and we are supposed to have one law, and everybody li- lives up to it and is held to account, and that includes the president of the United States. And so I've said from the beginning, I mean, that need to impeach was a petition drive that more than 8 million Americans signed to say, hold this president accountable. Mm-hmm. 
But it's also a statement of show us the people who count in this are not the 435 Congress people or the 100 senators. It's the 320 million Americans that count. Put it on TV. So what I say to moderates is, look, put it on TV. Let them show us in televised open hearings the truth and let us decide. Don't worry about what the Republican elected say. Don't worry about what the Democrat elected say. Let's figure out what we think. Because I think the evidence is so overwhelming that this man is corrupt, that he's abused his office, that he's obstructed justice. I want the American people to be able to see that. I want us to be the court that matters. Mm -hmm. And I think if they put it on TV, that's why I've been pushing all along for these televised hearings. The American people can make up our own mind. And that's going to be what actually matters, Megan. Not what they say in Washington, D.C., what they say in Nevada and the other 49 states. Right. So you think folks will have sort of a clearer sense of, of what the impeachment inquiry is all about once we move in sort of the, to this yes. public phase of it? You know, did they really think that Americans going to read the 448-page Mueller report, which was dense and incredibly boring? I don't think so. You know, this has been, you know, these, the, all these hearings have been behind closed doors. Why don't you show the American people and let us see? Isn't that really the point? And then it, let us decide whether he's a crook or not. And then we'll make up our mind. And then you can try and stand up to the will of the American people. I have one more policy question for you. And then we have some fun questions we've been asking all the candidates at the end. So that'll be, that'll be the end of the podcast. But um, we actually, the last time we talked on the phone, we started to talk a little bit about this. But we were talking about how you want to legalize marijuana at the federal <clears> level. And I'm sort of curious your perception on this. You know, states like Nevada that have, have legalized marijuana and California, obviously, you know, have been sta- taking steps to regulate this on, on a state level. And they're developing processes and putting those into place. Um, so once marijuana is legalized at the federal level, you know, under a Steyer presidency, is the goal to have the federal government continue to regulate it? Or do you think that states should be the ones continuing to enforce whatever they've put in place and sort of, you know, developing the models for new states? You know, I think, honestly, it will be a mix. And I don't want to be too simplistic, but Mm -hmm. I guess I'm working off the way we deal with alcohol. You know, there's state regulations and there's federal regulations. I think that really what's got to happen for, look, we've criminalized marijuana. We've put people in jail for possession of marijuana. You know, it's been going on for decades. Medical marijuana is not legal in many states. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked, I was in a state where medical marijuana is not uh, legal. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's the argument against it? Because, you know, I'm obviously for legalizing marijuana, period. And certainly medical marijuana, because I have a bunch of friends who've had seizures who use it as seizure medicine where it's legal and they think it's very effective. And I said, what's the argument against medical marijuana? And they said, well, the drug companies don't like it because it's too cheap and better than their drugs. I was like... Well, that's not an argument. That can't be, you know, my whole argument about running for president is these corporations have bought the government. Well, if the reason we don't have medical marijuana legal in all 50 states is because it's bad for for corporations but good for the American people, Mm -hmm. doesn't that seem a little crazy? Like, isn't that upside down? Aren't the laws supposed to benefit the people of the United States, not the drug companies of the United States? So, yeah, I feel strongly that this is something whose time has come and Mm -hmm. why, you know, Let's just do it. So it sounds like it'll be some sort of hybrid. Of it will because that federal. is how it works, honestly. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in in terms of alcohol, states have different rules about alcohol in mm-hmm. terms of when it's available and who is allowed to sell it and licensing and all that stuff. Sure. But the, the, what the feds have done in terms of alcohol is say we won't give you <clears throat> unless twenty one is the legal limit for al- for alcohol consumption in your state. We won't give you highway funding. Right. Right. So they've used money mm-hmm. as kind of a. Uh, you know, a bludgeon to make sure that the states pass laws that suit them. Sure. So there'll be some combination of that. Sure. I think. 
So turning to our, our last three questions, <laughs> the first one. I've only had one cup of coffee. I know, I, this, know, I, know. This, I think you're picking on me here. I am. I am. I definitely am. Uh, okay. So the first one, and I know this seems like a straightforward question, but it's hard for a lot of people, especially a lot of pollsters who've forgotten Nevada's place in the early nominating order. But we would like you to name and order the first four early nominating states. In order. In order. So which one goes first? Iowa, okay. New Hampshire, yes. Nevada, South Carolina. Perfect. Great. 100% so far. So you're good. <laughs> now, I, know you're, I know you're playing with me because the next two questions yeah. are where you slap me. Exactly. Okay. So the first one, you can take a second to think about this if you want. If you were a casino game, which one would you be? I would be... They play stud poker in casinos? Which, which one? They play stud poker. Poker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I would be. Okay. Cool. Third one, what's your favorite movie with a scene in Nevada? I'm sure everyone says the same thing. Okay, what's it going to be? Uh, I think I got to go with either Godfather 1 or Godfather 2, and I think I like Godfather 2. Okay, fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll let you and, have but that. But let me say this. <laughs> yes. So I have kayaked around Lake Tahoe. Oh, okay, yeah. So you know all those scenes yep, yep. of Michael Corleone's compound at Lake Tahoe? Yep, yep. You've I kayaked have that. kayaked past Michael Corleone's house on Lake Tahoe. You've done the whole thing. <laughs> yes, been I there. Have. <laughs> well, Lake Tahoe is the is the gem that 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 California and Nevada share. So I think we can I well, think we can agree on but that. But you know, when I was working, first of all, we own a house in, in on Tahoe mm-hmm. on the Nevada side, mm-hmm. and second of all, when I was working in Gardnerville as a ranch hand, I think it's thirteen miles from Tahoe. Oh yeah. So every nice. single time yeah. I got a chance, all I had to do was drive over the hill, oh, of course, and go down to the public beaches to enjoy it, like of Tahoe. Of course, of course. Whenever I'm up in Carson City covering the legislature, that's the same thing too. So you just boom, jump Garden- right on over. Gardnerville's so. <laughs> even closer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate Megan, it. Megan, thank you for having me. So now we have two short stories from KUNR's On Grey. The common use of dating apps has been attributed to more casual sexual encounters. Health officials say this type of hookup culture is one factor in the spike of sexually transmitted diseases. Right now, the combined number of cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis are at an all-time high nationally. On Grey talks with Jennifer Howell, who's with the Sexual Health Program at the Washoe County Health District, to learn more. Part of your work with the health district is the education and prevention of STDs. What specific STDs do we see on the rise across Nevada, but also specifically here in Washoe County? So we have a gradual increase of chlamydia and gonorrhea each year. For chlamydia, it's about 5 to 10, 10% increase per year. Gonorrhea, that's a little bit more of a dramatic increase by years, maybe like 60% one year, 70% another year. And then syphilis. And nationwide, we rank like 14th, 15th for chlamydia and gonorrhea as a state. When we look at syphilis, though, Nevada, we rank number one for primary and secondary syphilis, which are the stages of syphilis that are the most infectious or contagious. And then we rank number two in the country for congenital syphilis. So that's babies that are born with syphilis from an infected mother with a disease that can be fatal there's a lot of very negative health outcomes that, that are likely to occur, especially with those babies. What demographics are being most affected? Chlamydia, we're seeing it under the age of 25. For gonorrhea, we're seeing probably under the age of 40 as the most impacted population. It's really going kind of all over the place. Syphilis, it's all ages. 
It's all race, ethnicities, but 80% plus of the cases that we see in Washoe County are among men who have sex with men, and they may not identify as being gay or bisexual. They may identify as heterosexual, and they may have female partners and also male partners. That is the group that we're seeing impacted the most. Um, And then we're seeing an increase among females. We know that there is a number of people, uh, men who are having sex with male and female partners who may not be disclosing that. There has been connections between the rise in the use of dating apps and how using dating apps can promote a culture of hooking up and casual sexual encounters. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing? Social media apps that allow people to meet each other in ways that we didn't have before, whether it be hooking up or they're looking for a relationship or whatever that looks like for them, that's definitely had an impact. It takes people out of their social circle and exposes them to a new group of people or that has more influence on them or or something. And so they may have some substance use that they didn't have before, kind of take some more risks that they that wasn't their reality before they entered into that new social network. There's that component of it. Then there's also the component of knowing less maybe about your partner. If you're coming at it from a hookup perspective, then that's the goal is to hook up. That's the goal is to have this sexual encounter and whether it be continuous or a one-time thing and then not having the history. And so then people have limited information about who they have sex with. On the other hand, I've seen that people meeting each other online, that allows them to kind of have more conversations where they're between screens. And so maybe they are talking about it a little bit more. But if it's a hookup, they're probably not going to have those or it's going to be very limited. So can you talk a little bit more about the connection between drug use and the rise in STDs? Well, methamphetamine use has always had an impact on STDs and and people's behavior, I guess, and then putting them at risk for acquiring an STD. We've seen that for a couple decades. Opioid use, that brings in another component of people injecting drugs or putting themselves in situations to have sex to support their drug habit, survival sex, exchanging sex for something that they need, and that puts people at a higher risk. That's bringing in a group of people that may never have been a part of that experience before because it the opioid epidemic has touched so many different facets of life and so many different kind of um, classes and categories of people. And so it's really kind of brought more people into the fold of people that are at risk. Jennifer Howell is the Sexual Health Program Coordinator for the Washoe County Health District. Thanks for sharing your insights with us today. I always enjoy it. Thank you. With STDs rising for the fifth year in a row, and for those with STDs, dating and disclosure of their health status can pose additional challenges. As we just heard, Ann's been reporting on this issue, and now she has another short story about how technology can help with overcoming some of these stigmas. Dating apps are now a common way for people to meet, and there are a variety of niche sites that cater to different interests like Farmers Only or Silver Singles. Jennifer Howell is a sexual health expert with the Washoe County Health District. She says dating sites for people with STDs can help break down barriers. I think because there's so much stigma, even internalized, when a person has an STD, I think they feel like no one else is ever going to like me again. If I tell them, they're not going to understand. They're going to think I'm dirty. Janelle Marie Pierce is a spokesperson for the dating site Positive Singles, which has more than a million and a half members nationwide. Users self-report 
and their most common conditions are long-term STD infections like herpes or HIV. Pure Sysocyte isn't designed to keep people limited to one dating pool, but creates a safe springboard for disclosure. It builds intimacy and it starts that conversation. It gets that it gets the ball rolling when you're talking about stuff that is a little bit uncomfortable, quite a bit taboo. The CDC reports that nationwide, people with an STD are at an increased risk of getting HIV. Researchers find that behaviors that put someone at risk for one infection can put them at risk for others. That's why Howell, who's with the health district, says learning to have an open dialogue is key to prevention because personal encounters can also occur outside of dating sites. What if you meet somebody at the grocery store and that safe kind of haven is taken away, but you really like this person and you want to disclose to them? You have to, you know, have the skill set to be able to do that. Newly released data show that nationwide there were more than 2.4 million cases of three STDs combined, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Nevada is ranked first in the nation for the rate of primary and secondary syphilis. On Gray for KUNR News. All right, and so we are here at the last segment of the podcast, and uh, this week we're going to do a, uh, a segment we're going to call Indie Reads, and it's a uh, we're going to talk about books and what books we're reading and thing. And I've got Riley here with me. How's it going? Hey, Joey. And you have just read a book that you were t- explaining to me, and it sounded pretty interesting. And I figured we would uh, recommend it to the readers. Yeah, I enjoyed how I told you everything about the book, and then you just seized on one thing and thought it was about urban planning. So (laughs) the book is called uh, Boomtown. It was written by uh, a writer for New York Magazine named Sam Anderson. It came out last year, and it was given to me by my brother as a birthday gift because he thought it would hit a lot of uh, my favorite like sweet spots. It deals with basketball. It deals with urban planning and design. It's kind of the history of Oklahoma. It was just it was a really fascinating read. I read it on a plane ride. It took actually like one and a half plane rides to finish the whole book, but it was a really easy 400 pages. And yeah, it was a lot more interested in Oklahoma City than I ever thought I would be. Now I did seize on the, you're right. I did, <laughs> I did seize on the urban planning. How can it, how can it be talking about basketball, the city and urban planning? Is it just kind of about the city and, you know? Yeah. So there's a, there's like a driving narrative in the book about one of the more recent seasons of the Oklahoma City Thunder, which are a basketball team for you non-sports fans. <laughs> How many home runs uh, did they get a season? They got a lot of home runs in that season. Um, but it was, it, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. So the chapters in the book are pretty short, but they kind of jump back and forth between parts of Oklahoma history and culture in Oklahoma, all the tornadoes and the ups and downs of the season, which was the season where for the sports fans out there, where Oklahoma City traded James Harden to the Houston Rockets and they were trying to make it back to the NBA finals um, after getting there the previous year. So it was a, a like a really interesting mix. I think people in Nevada definitely know that sports can be a lot more than sports given um, how successful the Golden Knights were last year and kind of how much that meant to the community. And it was a very similar uh, thing in Oklahoma City. Um, when the Thunder came in, it was the first pro sports team to come into Oklahoma. And so yeah, it was it was really good. It touched on a lot of things I didn't know about, like the the Flaming Lips have a, a huge Oklahoma City connection, and their founder still lives in the city. It really did hit a lot of sweet spots. And if you don't like basketball, those chapters might be hard to get through, but it's definitely worth a, a read just to know some of the like the really truly insane history behind Oklahoma City. I mean, like the details of the land rush, like I kind of knew about, but I mean, how that whole process went down is just like one of the most insane Americana stories I've ever uh, read before. <laughs> And what's the book called again? And who's the author? 
It's called Boomtown, and it's by Sam Anderson. Well, Riley, thank you for being on this week. Yeah, thanks, Joey. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Tom Steyer for joining us this week. We'd also like to thank KUNR's On Gray for her fantastic community health reporting. And of course, I'd like to thank Riley Snyder for sharing his book, Boomtown. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed so you can be the first to hear of our new episodes as we interview more 2020 candidates. If you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can let me know by emailing me at joey at the nvindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at the nvindie.com. Our original theme song is from Reno band People With Bodies, and you can hear more of their music on Bandcamp or Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>